This morning, we're going to tackle the passage in Deuteronomy that is the reason that most pastors avoid preaching Deuteronomy at all costs, except for this foolish pastor. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7 is going to say some things that are extremely difficult for modern readers. And so I feel like I have a difficult task ahead of me. It's unfortunate that the chapter is avoided though because hiding in Deuteronomy is a treasure of gospel truth that I don't want us to miss out on. I liken Deuteronomy 7 to a field of landmines that's been placed over a reservoir of oil. And the only way to get to the treasure is you gotta navigate through some things that could potentially blow up in your face. But I'm just the kind of pastor that's willing to take a risk, all right? So, but also I, I want you to know that this sermon's been very challenging to write and it's gonna be a very difficult sermon to preach. And so, seeing as we're a praying church and we're having spontaneous moments of prayer, I have an idea, why don't we pray right now? And here's the thing, I'm gonna pray for you, and how about this, why don't you pray for me? Does that sound okay? That's okay, let me pray, bow your heads. Heavenly Father, we need your Holy Spirit today. I need your Holy Spirit so that the words that leave my mouth will be totally sanctified by you. And every person sitting in the pew right now needs your Holy Spirit so that the words that enter their ears and hearts would point them to the reality of Christ. We believe that the same Holy Spirit who inspired Moses to write these words is with us now to illuminate, to open the eyes of our hearts so we'd see the glory of Jesus. And so forgive us, Lord, if we have come with a posture of arrogance. We're not here to stand in judgment over the Bible. We are here to be under the judgment of the Bible by your grace. And so would you move in this place, I pray. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. Amen. In 1976, Francis Schaeffer released what was arguably his most important book, a book by the title, How Should We Then Live? Francis Schaeffer was a theologian and an apologist, and the argument of this book is that people always live out what they ultimately believe, always. People don't live out what they say they believe. People live out what they actually believe. That's true of individuals, and uh, it's true of large groups and societies. Societies will always eventually live out what is most basic in their belief system about ultimate reality. So for example, if a society believes that the cosmos is here by a complete accident, that society will begin to live in ways that reveal that's what they actually believe. But if a society believes that we're here because of a divine creator who's gracious and powerful and loving, that society will begin to live in ways that demonstrate they believe that. And the reason I'm talking about this is that little phrase, how should we then live, is a perfect summary of the entire message of Deuteronomy. 
What Moses is doing at the border as he preaches to the people of Israel is he's asking the question, how should we live based on what we know to be true about God? Remember, we're calling this series A People at the Boundary. And we're calling it that because the whole book of Deuteronomy takes place in one spot, right at the boundary on the eastern side of the Jordan River, looking west into the promised land. The people are about to enter in and Moses preaches an entire sermon, 26 chapters of Deuteronomy, where he says, folks, how should we live once we get in there based on what we believe to be true about the grace of God? And so this morning, what we're going to see as we get to chapter seven is he's going to ask and answer one of the most important questions they need to discover, which is what is our mission? Why are we here? Who are we? And why are we here? What is our purpose? Why are we even going in there in the first place? When my wife convinces me to go with her to the container store at Bridgeport Village, I ask those very same questions. Why are we here? What is the purpose Please tell me what the mission is. Are we just here to browse the aisles and discover all the things we didn't know we needed until we got to the container store? Or do we have a goal? Okay. In a moment, I'm going to read to you the mission statement of the people of God. And when you read this, you're going to think it's just a series of identity statements, but it's so much more. Their identity was the prescription for their mission. And in order to get there, I'm going to have to read through some landmines. So will you look at your Bible now? Deuteronomy 7. I'm going to start in verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. Hello. That's intense. We're going to talk about it. You shall make no covenant with them and you shall show no mercy to them and you shall not intermarry with them. Whoa, what does that mean? Is that a racial thing? What's going on there? We're going to talk about it. Don't give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. Now pay attention. This is mission critical right here. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. No, it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God 
who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with those who hate him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I commanded you today. We'll read the rest of the chapter. We'll read bits of the chapter in just a moment. That's very intense. It's very intense. But here's what I want you to see. Verses six through eight are the theological center. They are the mission statement. If you do not understand verses six through eight, you're not gonna be able to understand what you read in verses one through five, all the difficult stuff. You'll misinterpret that. If you don't understand six through eight, you won't understand what Moses says next. And the three most important words in verses six through eight are the following. Chosen, holy, and loved. Or the word beloved, These are not just identity words. These are mission words. Do you see them in verse seven there when it's in verse six, chosen. The Lord your God has chosen you to be his people from all the other peoples of the earth. Holy, you're a people holy to the Lord your God. Loved, verse seven. It's not because you were more numerous that he loved you. God just loved you. These words, if we were to believe them today, they would begin to change the way we, our understanding of our mission. And I need to say something that's gonna sound very intense, but it's very prophetic. I believe it's become very evident to me that large swaths of evangelicalism in America have totally lost sight of this identity. Because if we believed this, we would be behaving differently than we behave in this age. And I want change to start now, and I want it to start right here. Amen? Are you with me? The the very first thing you need to realize is if you understood the word chosen, you'd realize that we should be the most humble people on the planet. Okay, so look at your Bible now, and let me show you this. In verse 6, when Moses said, the Lord has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, he's not saying that God doesn't care about other people groups. He's not saying that God has disregard for other people groups, just the opposite. What Moses is saying is that God has chosen one people to become a source of blessing for all the other people groups. That's the purpose of election. That's the purpose of being chosen. It goes all the way back to the promises to Abraham where God said, I will bless you. Why? I'll bless you to be a blessing to the nations. You will become a people who will be so distinct and unique in the kind of community that you have that as you spread out into the world, the the rest of the nations will be blessed and experience the grace of God through you being chosen by me. And the fundamental characteristic that Moses focuses on in verse seven is the characteristic of radical humility. Will you look at your Bible, please? When, God, when Moses says, was it because you were more numerous? Was it because you were this awesome nation that God chose you and decided to love you? Moses is addressing the question that people would ask. Why? Why did God choose us? Why did God choose the nation of Israel? Maybe they were more noble. Maybe they were impressive. Maybe they were large or significant. And Moses says, 
it was actually just the opposite. There was nothing impressive about you. I chose you because I chose you. And you wouldn't even have a relationship with me had I not chosen you. It's the difficult but very biblical from Genesis to Revelation. It's the biblical doctrine of election by grace. And it's all over the Bible. It's possible that you've not been taught this well, depending on what church tradition you came from. It's possible you've never heard a pastor develop this connection, but here's what you need to know. In the Bible, the doctrine of election by sheer grace is intended to cultivate in the people of God radical humility. Because we would recognize There's absolutely nothing about me that caused God to choose me. I'm no different than my neighbor. He chose me because he chose me. I can't explain it. People struggle with election. I get it. I just go, I don't want you to ever say, I don't believe in election. That you cannot be a Christian and say that. It's in the Bible, all over the Bible. You might have a different view of how election works, but every Bible-believing Christian believes in election. But we struggle with it for different reasons. One of them is it sounds so arrogant. You're saying you believe you're the chosen people. How elitist. How could you possibly say that? And sometimes Christians have behaved in elitist ways. And sometimes we have looked down on other people and thought we're the only ones with the truth. And there's examples throughout history of Christians behaving in ways that are tyrannical and mean and domineering. But here's the reality. When a person says to you, election sounds really arrogant. How, like, how can we, you have to be an elitist to say that. Your response to that should be, if that's what you think, then you actually don't understand the doctrine because no one who actually understands this doctrine would become arrogant. You would become radically humble. And folks, this is a prophetic word. I'm going to preach this really strongly. I think there is nothing that the United States of America needs more in 2024 than to look into Christian churches and see radical humility. We have to show the world this. It's got to change. Radical humility. I've been reading a lot of Sam Harris recently. Um, Sam Harris is a secular atheist. He's brilliant. He's one of the most brilliant people on the planet. I don't agree with everything he writes. I disagree with a lot of what he writes, but I'm a better Christian for having to engage with his uh, writings. But recently he said something in this book called The Moral Landscape, and I sat back. I was like, I can't believe he just made that claim. Here's what he basically said. Sam Harris said that in general, um, people who are of higher intelligence and of more education tend to reject Christianity and that people who embrace Christianity tend to be less educated and of lower intelligence. Hello, welcome to church. I don't know if that's what you joined. (laughs) But I'm reading the book and I'm like, dude, that's a big claim. Here's the problem. What Sam said is not entirely untrue. 
Let me just read one passage. This is from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians. I don't know if you've ever read this before. This is 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, that's because of God, you're in Christ Jesus. Do you see it? Radical humility. Now, what's that verse saying? Well, on the one hand, it's saying the moment that Jesus rose from the dead and ascended, the gospel began to spread and it spread into every tribe, tongue, nation, people group. The gospel is for the whole world. But one of the things we might observe is that, and this is true, in general, elites, people who are highly educated, people who think of themselves as the intelligentsia class tend to have a hard time with the claims of the gospel. And they tend to reject it. Why? Because the gospel basically says you don't and you can't contribute anything to your salvation. You are morally not there. And for people who are elite and sophisticated and highly educated, that is a immediate affront to their, self of, their sense of self-sufficiency and brilliance and their freedom to choose and all those things, so they reject it. And in general, people who are weak and broken and bring nothing to the table, when they hear the message of the gospel, it sounds like the sweetest news. And so River West, the way that we'll fulfill our mission out there is by believing at the bottom of our core that we have been chosen by God's sheer grace and allow that to cultivate in our community the most radical sense of humility. Amen? Are you with me? Let's, get, let's become so humble. But that's not the only word because that choosing has a purpose. Look at verse six. The, the purpose of God choosing a people is to make them holy, a people holy to the Lord your God. Now, when we hear the word holy, here's the problem. We hear holy and we think ethical, upright individuals. They're holy. And the problem is that's totally wrong. That's actually not what the word means. The word holy actually means something that's set apart for a very unique purpose. It's distinct. So if you think someone who's morally upright, that's not what it means. It just means they're, 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 they're set apart for some specific, unique task. The way I like to illustrate this is I have many Bibles in my life, but one of them is very unique. It's set apart only for the task of preaching. And this Bible, it's all the same words, but this Bible is set apart. It's very special to me. It's covered in goat skin. A goat died so that you could hear this sermon. Amen? Okay. And, it's, and in the pages are beautiful. And it looks like it's lined with gold dust. And it might be. I don't know. And when, I, when I'm done preaching, I go back to my office and I put it back in its original box 
that has a velvet covering in it and I put the Bible away and then I kiss the box and I put it back on the shelf and it's very special to me but it's not, it has nothing to do with morality. This is what, this is what Moses is saying. You've been set apart and not only that, he's saying it's not about being an individual. Look at verse six. He's saying when God chooses you, he sets you apart as a people You're chosen to be a holy people, which means the community is supposed to be distinct. We're supposed to look different. We're supposed to stand out. There's one Bible over there and it's tattered and then there's one Bible over here and it looks really different, it's beautiful. And in our world, there's supposed to be multiple groups of people. Some of them look one way, but people are supposed to look at the church and go, there's something different about them. I, don't, I can't quite figure it out. Tim Keller says it like this. We're supposed to be a community that is so radically different. The peace and justice and love of the community that people who believe and are chosen by grace should be so radically different from the community and social structures of the people around us that the world sees who God is. Amen. Every commentator notices about this passage that Moses was recapitulating something that he had said in the book of Exodus. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna put up a slide and show you that these verses, chosen, holy, beloved, they start in Exodus and then they show up all throughout the New Testament, by the way, applied to the church. Uh, Specifically, I'll just show you 1 Peter. So in Exodus, it's you're, you're, you're chosen, you're a holy people. But notice there's something that's added in Exodus and in First Peter. And what's added is this idea of being a priesthood of believers. Do you see that? Or a royal priesthood. Now, what does that mean? Well, priests were people whose mission was to be mediators Their their purpose in life was to help people connect with God. Their mission was to create ways for all people to find God. That's what priests were supposed to do. And so when Moses and then later Peter describes the church this way, they're saying the fundamental mission of the church is to live in such a way through our corporate life that people in our world find God. And we do it by being distinct, holy. So we're a holy people and we're a priesthood of believers. And you put those together and it explodes into a powerful mission for the church. And folks, here's the thing. I need you to buy into this mission because it's time for a change in our world. We've got to start changing the reputation of Jesus out there, and the way we're gonna do it is by building a different kind of community in here. Our society is built on power, dominance, self-promotion, survival of the fittest, self-gratification through Fill in the blank, sex, money, promotion, power. That's the kind of society you would build if you believed that the world is a cosmic accident. You would believe in survival of the fittest. But we don't believe in that. 
We believe in a God of grace who chooses people based on no merit of their own. He runs after the poor. He runs after the lowly. So the opposite of dominant self-promotion and self-gratification would be a community that's marked by humility. A community of self-sacrifice. A community that cares for the poor and the broken. That's the kind of community that would reflect the heart of God. It's amazing in a few weeks when we get to Deuteronomy chapters 12 through 26, we're gonna find all the laws that God gives the people of Israel. And there's some astounding things in the law code. It's very uh, upside down. It's very countercultural. So I'll talk just about a couple of them, but we'll get there. I'm excited to preach this. So think about power. In the ancient world, kings, there were no limits on their power. They could do whatever they want. They could kill whoever they want. And, but for the people of Israel, God says it's not gonna be like that. And there's all these laws that put checks and balances on the power. It's like God says, if you're gonna be a king in my, in my community, you don't get to do whatever you want. In fact, you have to write down the entire Old Testament Torah and devote your life to it and become godlike in your leadership. That was very revolutionary, folks. There's an entire chapter in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 15, that's uh, devoted to rules for farmers called gleaning laws. I don't know if you ever heard of this. There were gleaning laws that said to farmers, when you glean and harvest, don't go all the way to the corners of your land. Leave parts of your land unharvested so that the poor and the refugees can come and they can go into your field and they can get food to survive. You know that in the ancient world, no one cared about the poor. The poor were weak. You cast off the poor. You, you ignore the poor, but not for the people of God. For the people of God, we love the poor. We take our resources and we say, we don't say, I earned this through my own amazingness. We say, God blessed me with this. I'm gonna use this to care for the poor and the marginalized and the broken. I wanna be a part of a community like nothing the world has ever seen. And I wanna build it together. I wanna be a part of a community where people in our city look at the church and go, what is going on in there? And they sit forward. I wanna be a part of a community where we don't fight and divide over politics. I wanna be a part of a community where despite our socioeconomic differences or our ethnic differences, we are united in love and humility. I want to be a part of a community that creates change, not through political force or political manipulation, but by being winsome and humble and kind and gracious. I want to be a part of a community that holds strong to orthodox views of sexuality in marriage, but does it in a way that makes other people feel loved and seen by Jesus. That's the kind of community I want to be a part of and I need your help to build it. That's why Derek got up here and said, we can't just sit in rows. We have to sit in circles. We have to learn how to pray for one another and encourage one another and talk about these things and spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And so I hope you'll go even deeper in to our church family.
But now let me address the issue of violence in the Bible. So we look back at your Bible now to verses one through six. What I need you to realize is that you can't understand verses one through five if you don't understand verse six. We look at verse six. Do you see how the verse starts with the word for you are a holy people? What Moses is doing is he's saying, this is the reason why I just wrote verses one through five. He's saying the reason that I've asked you to go into Canaan and be radically against all of their pagan religion and go in and tear down the ashram and destroy all their altars is because you are my people and you're set apart and you're unique to me. In order to be a blessing to the nations, the people of God have to maintain their distinctiveness as the people of God. And if they go into Canaan and they get absorbed into Canaanite religion, all of their distinctiveness will go away and they'll no longer be compelling. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk about the destruction verse, but here's what I want you to see. Look at verse five. Verse five is the focus. What Moses is really saying is, have radical intolerance towards pagan idolatry, because if you get sucked into that, all of your distinctiveness will go away. But verse two is a challenge. Let me just read it to you. When the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. That's intense. It sounds like God's giving them permission to commit genocide. And what I'm gonna do here is for a minute, couple minutes, I'm gonna address this. Now, here's the thing you gotta realize. Many of you are going to leave and go, I don't feel like he said enough there. And the reason for that is I lectured for an hour and a half last October on this passage. It's on our YouTube channel. If you're wrestling with this, I really encourage you to go back and watch that lecture. But let me just give you a couple highlights that I think will be helpful. Here's the first thing you need to know, the whole idea of like going in, like defeating the Canaanites, holy war, however you wanna kind of describe it. The first thing we have to realize is many of us as modern Westerners, we have a caricature in our head of what that was and it's probably not accurate. Most of us think something like this. Canaan was this idyllic, peaceful place with people who were keeping to themselves, seeking to build a society of human thriving and kindness. They were warm and gracious. They recycled. They cared about global warming, all of that stuff. And Israel is this big, bad, mean, heavily armed monster. Here's the problem. It was probably almost something just the opposite. Israel was weak. It, this was a group of people who had just been redeemed out of slavery. They were emaciated, they were hungry, they'd been wandering in the wilderness, they had no technology, they had no weapons, they were small. By the way, don't think, when you think Israel in the Old Testament, do not immediately jump to modern day, the nation state Israel, those are two different things. There's some connectivity, but they're not the same thing. The Israel of the Old Testament was weak, small, powerless. And not only that, Canaanites, there was so much wickedness there, folks. I'm shocked at how many modern scholars minimize this. The people in the land of Canaan were 
unbelievably wicked. Think the worst things you can possibly think and it was probably worse. As a part of their religion, they would rape people as a part of temple prostitution. They sacrificed their babies on altars. It was horrific. And God had been warning them for century after century after century, I'm gonna come and judge. And he had been gracious and patient. And finally God said, not only am I gonna judge, but I'm gonna judge through a people group who couldn't possibly win a single military battle if I was not in their presence. Does it take the problem away completely? Not necessarily, but just make sure we don't have an, an, an uninformed character. Here's the second thing you need to know. That phrase, devote them to complete destruction, see it there, was a form of war rhetoric, an ancient war rhetoric. So it didn't mean that they actually went in and killed everyone. In fact, there's all kinds of evidence that they didn't do that. It was a, it was a way to pump up the, the, the army, Imagine in a, in a, in a, um, like in a locker room at halftime when the coach says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go out there and I want you to wipe the floor with them. That doesn't mean literally grab mops and go. It's like, it's, it's rhetoric. And, and that was almost certainly what was happening. The point of utter destruction was not wiping out individual people. It was wiping out idolatrous pagan symbols that would tweak them, Okay. We know this is true because look at verse two and then look at verse three. He says, complete them to utter, uh, devote them to utter destruction, but also don't marry them or have covenants with them. Well, how can you marry someone you just killed? So it's like, that's, we know that's what's happening there. Here's the last thing you need to realize. The cities that Israel actually conquered were military strongholds. They were not civilian population centers, Okay. We hear Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. They marched around Jericho and we have in our heads Sherwood or something. It's like, who would want to, who would want to fight Sherwood? Nobody, like it's a nice place, right? So we, we, hear, we hear cities or Jericho. We think civilian centers and people living in neighborhoods and there's a Starbucks over here and there's a recreational marijuana center over there. And it's like, this is, okay, this is not what's happening here. Jericho was not a neighborhood. Jericho was a military fortress and the people in Jericho were soldiers. It's actually likely that the people of Israel killed very few innocent civilians. And actually, as one commentator has argued, and I agree, if they had gone in and fulfilled their mission of eradicating all of the idolatry, the religious idolatry, the vast majority of the citizens would have been absorbed into the people of God because they would have been so compelled by Yahweh. But history tells us they didn't do that. They worshiped Baal, they worshiped Asherah, they lost their distinctiveness and they didn't fulfill their mission. But our mission is to maintain our distinctiveness as the people of Jesus. No matter how much the world tries to lure us away, we have to fight now in a spiritual sense to protect who we are so that we maintain our attractiveness to people out there. Amen? Amen. Amen. One last word 
It's the word loved. We look at verse seven. This verse is the gospel in a verse and a half. I'm gonna read it and then I'm gonna tell you why it's so important. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all peoples. No, it's because the Lord loves you. Here is the logic. It's circular. Moses says, why did God love you? Was it because you were large? Was it because you were impressive? No. Why did God love you? Was it because you're more spiritual? Was it because you're more noble? No. Why did God love you? God loved you because he loved you. That's it. He loved you because he loved you. And you don't even realize how absolutely critical it is that you believe this. But here's the thing. If you fill in the answer with anything else, why did God love you? Well, it's because there's probably something pretty decent about me. Here's the problem. The moment that thing is no longer a part of your life, all of your security as the object of God's love goes away. You want a God who says, the reason that I loved you is just because I love you. I just love you. When Lauren was a little girl, um, she was very adorable. There she is. Look at that. I mean, that's not even fair. Come on. <laughs> yeah, thank you. That's Lauren, age one and a half. And when she was really little, we used to play this game together where she'd be across the room and she would pretend that she was ignoring me. It was adorable. And she would be playing and she would like refuse to make eye contact with me. And I would say, Lauren. And she would try to be so strong. I'm not going to look at dad. And I'd say, Lauren. And then eventually she'd look over and I'd go, I love you. And then she'd look away and smile and try to ignore me. And I'd say, Lauren. And then she'd look. I'd say, I love you. And one day she came over and she sat next to me and she's like, daddy, why do you love me? Now, this moment's really critical, okay? Because what if a father said, well, I love you because you're so adorable. Here's the problem with that. Now, if Lauren was older and had her cognitive faculties, she, she would think, well, wait a minute. What if a day comes when I'm not adorable anymore? Will you not love me? Or if I said, I love you because you're so well-behaved and Lauren would think, well, what if a day came when I was really terrible or I did something horrible? I love you because you're so intelligent. Well, what if a day comes where I lose my cognitive faculties for some reason? I love you for fill in the blank. Any of those things, no matter what it is, if you think that's the thing you bring before God, your security before God will be completely destroyed. There's one reason and one reason only that God loves us. It's because he loves us. And we know this is true because Jesus died on a cross. You say, how do I believe that God loves me? And how do I believe that God is holy and he hates sin? Those two don't, those don't go together. Actually, they do don't go together. They come together on a sinner's cross where Jesus Christ took the full payment for your sin and God's justice was appeased. 
And Jesus poured out the love of the father through his sacrificial death. And God says, justice for sin, love for the sinner at the cross of Christ. And if you build your life on that, folks, you'll have so much security and we'll become the kind of church that Jesus has called us to become. So there's a couple things I need to tell you. The first thing I need to tell you is in a room this size, the chances that there are people who have held Jesus at a distance are very high. And I'm describing some of you. And all I want you to know is God loves you and he even died to forgive you of that. But today is the day to stop turning your back on Jesus. It's gotta, it's gotta end. Today is the day to say, you know what? I am going to follow Christ in my life. And I'm gonna pray about that right now. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, we, we need to believe Deuteronomy 6 and 7 more than we'll ever realize. Why are we chosen? We are chosen by sheer grace. I pray, God, that our church would become so radically humble that it would just be contagious. It starts right here on the stage in my own heart. And I repent before you, God, of my arrogance and my self-centeredness. And I pray, and we pray that we would become more and more like Jesus. Wipe away our entitlement. Wipe away our elitism. Remind us that you chose us by grace. Yes, we are holy. We're supposed to be set apart, but that is by your grace, and it's because we're the objects of your love. A love that you want to spread to all the peoples of the earth, and we pray for that. That's our mission. And I pray now, Lord, for those who have come in who, when they walked in, they were not following Jesus, they would not call themselves a Christian. I pray that in the next few moments, all of that would change. Heavenly Father, would you pour out your Holy Spirit? Cause faith to erupt. Cause lives to change in this place. Birth faith in human hearts, I pray. Not just faith in a nebulous God, but faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, who died on a cross and rose again cause that faith to grow. And so if that's you, just begin to pray, Lord, I believe. I believe what I'm hearing about Jesus. I understand my sin is wicked. I understand Jesus died to pay for my sin. And you're becoming a follower of Jesus. And so we love you, Lord. And we pray these things together in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. amen.